I hope you still have your Bibles open to Luke 15. Luke 15, as we continue our journey through this passage. Um, last Sunday we looked at verses 1 through 10, and uh, this Sunday we'll be in verses 11 through 26, and we'll wrap things up by looking at the elder brother next Sunday, verses 25 to 32. As Trevor said, and as you heard as it's read, this is a an amazing story. We were talking this morning just to imagine Jesus sort of telling the story for the first time and the details that are there and almost on the spot. That's almost a, an evidence of his deity right there that he could craft this story in a moment to fit the scene. Um, Charles Dickens, a great writer, once said that the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is the greatest short story ever written. Um, not that he's the ultimate authority, but I think he was right. Uh, if you've been in church long enough, you've heard probably a sermon on this, or at least heard the the, the story. It's it's uh, um, maybe you've heard multiple sermons on the prodigal son, um, and there's all these references even with our own in our own culture from this story. I'm actually in the midst of reading two. These are our book length treatments of these. Verses. So a whole book, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, and another whole book, A Tale of Two Sons by John MacArthur, and they're not the only ones, but these are whole books written just about this particular story. And so I am under no illusion in thinking that I can exhaust everything that's here. And so um, my hope is to just to try to paint some kind of a picture for what's going on here. Um, I can say that I think I have felt the lostness of this son more this week than in any other times that I've meditated on this. And I think that in some ways that is the key to understanding the love of the Father. That God's love is seen in contrast to how far this son had fallen. And until we see how lost this this boy was, we will not understand the love of the Father that's exemplified here uh, in this passage. The more that we know our sin, the more we will marvel at the extravagant love of God. Uh, We've said it before that part of what Jesus is saying here is that we are more lost, we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but more loved than we could ever dream. Uh, It's something that we've drawn out from Luke before. Let me say it a little bit more in terms of Luke 15. Remember one of the keys is rejoicing. And I think we could say this, that God rejoices with extravagant love over the vilest of sinners who humbly come home. That's a long sentence. Let me say it again. God rejoices with extravagant love over the vilest, the the worst of sinners who humbly come home. We can all identify with this story. We either were a prodigal or we are a prodigal. Um, And all of us should marvel at the love of the Father that's expressed here. My hope is that if you are a prodigal, that you would come home. And that if you were a prodigal, that you would be reminded once again of the extravagant love and grace of God towards us. I really think that's that's my main prayer, is that prayer of Paul, that we would understand the height and the breadth, the breadth, the length and the depth, to just get all the dimensions of the greatness of God's love. So, if, if you're here just to, to pray that prayer that we saw at the end of, of Luke 14, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
He who has eyes to see, let him see. Just pray, God, help me to see and to understand the love that you have for me. As, as we look at this passage, just let me remind you of the context. You remember verses 1 and 2, that the scene is of tax collectors and sinners drawing near to him. Those who were outcasts of society loved to come to Jesus. They wanted to come to Jesus. And so they're all gathered around, and with them is this whole group of Pharisees and scribes, the religious elite of the day, and they are grumbling at the fact that sinners and tax collectors are coming to Jesus, and Jesus is not casting them out. So again, that's that's the scene is of these two groups of people, and Jesus is telling the story to both of them, um, though I think with a particular eye towards the, the Pharisees and towards uh, the scribes, um, but it's a call for them to rejoice with the Father at His love for those who repent. There's three characters in the story. It's very obvious. There's, there's two sons. The younger son, and the younger son represents these tax collectors and sinners, the sinful outcasts of society. Uh, the elder son that we're going to see next week it represents the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He's just a perfect example of their attitude. And then there's the father. And the father represents the Father represents God. It shows us who God is. The Father is the central character in this parable. I think we might think it's the younger son, but it's the Father's actions who are surprising. The Father is the one that creates the tension. The Father is the one who does the opposite of what everyone would expect. And so the Father is the central character here. This story is known as the prodigal son, but that's probably not the best title. As we've pointed out, there are two sons. So I've heard it said that this could be called the, the parable of two lost sons, because both are equally lost. It's not just the prodigal. But then again, if the father is the central character, couldn't we say that, that this parable is, is the, the parable of, of, of the love of the father? It's, it's the, the parable of the gracious father. Um, Carolyn told me that she's heard it called the parable of the waiting father. Maybe these are better pictures for what's actually going on in here. But the word prodigal is, is interesting. I, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word prodigal, but I always assumed that it meant someone that wandered away. That that's, that's the ideas of, of a prodigal wandering, but that's not at all what the word means. Um, in Tim Keller's book, he points out that the word actually means recklessly extravagant or having spent everything. That that's what prodigal means. And so what the description of is, is of, of what this son does with everything that he has. He goes and he spends everything. He is reckless in his living and reckless in his spending. And we're going to see later actually that Keller calls this his book the prodigal God. And that this word for prodigal is in fact a word that not only describes the son, but will describe the love of the father as well. That the father is a reckless spendthrift with his love towards the son and to, towards all who would come home. So whatever we want to call the parable, you call it whatever you want. Uh, if we're going to rightly understand it, we're going to need to work hard to understand what the original audience understood it to mean. There's a lot of nuances of, of culture that, that we can draw out, and, and hopefully those will not just be something intellectual, but will help us to delve down and really see what Jesus was trying to say. So this morning we're going to think first about the, the actions and the attitudes of the Son in a few phrases, and then we're going to think about the extravagant love of the Father. So we'll take these two characters and think about them in different ways. So the, the first is we're thinking about the, the actions of the Son. This younger son. And the first thing we see is his rejection of the father. 
his rejection of the father. So immediately after the introduction, there was a man who had two sons. We find that the younger son demands of his father his inheritance. He wants all that is is coming to him from the father. Uh, Being the the younger son, he would have been entitled to one-third of his father's estate. Uh, The older son would would get two-thirds of the father's estate as the older son. And so he had an inheritance coming to him, and he's getting a third of the estate, and he says to the father, I want this right now. And in our culture, we may not understand in this statement how, how dishonoring, how disgraceful this is for this son to say this to his father. He's telling his father that, Father, I, I love what I can get from you, but I don't want to be near you. Many commentators say that this request is actually the equivalent of saying to his father, I wish you were dead so that I could have what's coming to me. Because that's when he's going to get the goods, is when his father dies. And so he's saying, I wish you were dead now so that I could have all these things. In actuality, though, the father is not the one that is being wished to be dead, but the son would be considered dead in this circumstance to say this to his father. He would, at the very least, he would be publicly disgraced. Uh, He would probably receive a public slap in the face, at the very least, and probably then be cast out from the family. He would be dead to his family. He would be shunned. He would be rejected by them completely. Which is why it's amazing to see what happens in the parable. The son says in verse 12, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And he divided his property between them. That, that's all it says. It just, that the father, the father's response is, is shocking. It says simply that the, the father gives the son what he asks for. Now, think about this. this the father's estate is not in like stocks and bonds or cash in a bank. The, the father's estate is in land and possessions. And so it, in order for him to give the son these things, it probably means he has to sell at least part of the land that is his. He has to d- divide the estate. He has to take some of these possessions that he owns and and sell them so that he can give these things to his son. Um, the younger son, if he's going to do this, he's going to get a lot less than he would have if he would have waited. It's like having a garage sale, right? If you had a garage sale right now, you're not going to get as much for your things as you may have just paid for them, especially if you just bought them. And so he's not going to get what he what he is what he would get if he would wait. But this guy, the younger son, he he wants cash. <laughs> And he wants it right now. The money is less important to him than his freedom. And he says, I I want what you can give me, and I want it right now. Now, this is the the picture of all of us, of all of humanity, apart from Christ. We are are born into this world. We're born into this world, and we're surrounded by the gifts of the Father. He gives us everything that we need, life and breath and food and everything that we need, God God gives it to us. But we don't want to submit to Him. We don't want to be near Him. We don't want to come to Him in obedience and in faith. And Romans says we worship the creature rather than the Creator. We reject the Father. We, we see the foolishness of our own sin in this younger son. Who, If he would have just waited... He would have received so much more, but he said, no, I want it now. If he would have stayed with the Father, he would have been blessed. He would have received everything that he wanted. And so too with us, we we reject God. And when we reject God, we miss all that God desires to give us. 
We seek our own good apart from Him, and in fact, we don't get anything that we're looking for. We're not told earlier why this son wants this to do this right now, but we find out very soon, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So we find out he packs everything, everything that he owns, and he, and he leaves. He, he doesn't leave anything. Um, this is, shows this intention of never returning. I'm not coming back. It's, I've sold everything. I'm taking everything. He's converted his entire inheritance into cash. His pockets are now full of this money, and he heads towards a far country, no doubt expecting to find freedom and exaltation and not realizing what we all know, that he's stepping into slavery, he's stepping into condemnation, that he is beginning to fall down a spiral that's going to lead him to despair and to ruin. That's the next thing that we see is the ruin caused by sin. The ruin caused by sin. He journeys, it says, into a distant land. That distant land probably is referring to a Gentile land. Uh, probably we can know that in part because he ends up working for a pig farmer later on. There weren't many pig farmers in Israel. And so he's probably in a Gentile land. He wants to get as far away from his family as he can. He wants to be away from them so he can do whatever he wants without them looking over his shoulder. He wants to get as far away from them. And he has no interest in, um, in preserving his cleanliness as a Jewish young man. He has no interest in his religious heritage or his family ties. His only interest right now is his self-interest. I'm worried about me. So he has lots of money, and he has lots of ways to fill all his selfish desires, and I imagine that he quickly became a very popular man in town. There are many people that were willing to help him spend his money uh, seeking out all this worldly pleasure. Again, this is, this is sin, isn't it? This is what sin does. It's, it's taking the gifts of God, the things that He gives us, and exalting them above Him. Or enjoying the gifts of God without any reference to Him. Not thinking about who He is, not worried about pleasing Him, but simply enjoying what He has placed in this world and enjoying it for our own satisfaction. So we find that He devours His property with, with prostitutes, is what His brother later says. So the prodigal wants sex. It's a gift from God given to be enjoyed in marriage. But he says, I don't want to enjoy it with reference to my father. I want to enjoy it the way I want to enjoy it. And so he spends his money on prostitutes. He wants joy, which God wants to give to his children. He wants to give them this. But instead, this guy pursues it with, with parties and, and with friends that are leading him away from God. He wants satisfaction. Satisfaction that can be found only in Christ. But this... Man seeks it through gluttony. He seeks it through drunkenness. He seeks it through everything else. And this is how we wander from the Father. We, we try to find pleasure in the gifts that He's given and not in Him. But we find also that as usual, a lot of money is not as much money as you think it is. People who win the lottery don't last long typically. And soon He has spread His money all around town and it's gone. Just think about that. He's taken this entire inheritance that not only had his father worked for, but for generations had been passed down generation after generation after generation. And he has taken it and spent it all, probably in a very short period of time. He's wasted it all. And now with no money, he has no friends. No one cares about him. As Eric Clapton says, nobody knows you when you're down and out. 
No friends when you don't have the money anymore. And then to add insult to injury, you see this, verse 14, And when he had spent everything, so everything is now gone, at that moment, a severe famine arose in the country. So now he's got no money to buy food, and even if he had money to buy food, there's no food in that land to buy. There's famine. Can you imagine being broke in the midst of a land experiencing famine? What would you do? Well, this guy in desperation takes takes a job. He finds a job feeding pigs. Here's a young Jewish, probably teenager from an elite family, and he finds himself in a Gentile country feeding unclean swine. It's hard to get much lower in the eyes of those that are listening to him, to this story, especially the Pharisees and the scribes. This man is starving. He is hungry. He's so hungry that, in fact, he's ready to eat what the pigs are eating. And pigs eat anything. Imagine what pigs eat during a famine. And this young man is willing to eat whatever is set out before them. And no one cares about him. Now again, if you are a Jewish person in this context, listening to this story, there is no more pathetic or worthless character that you could even come up with. We all look at this guy, and in some ways we can all say he is reaping what he has sown. He is getting exactly what he deserves. And there is a truth to that. His disrespect, his foolishness, his selfishness have earned him this. And people would look at him and say he is a waste of breath. He deserves whatever he gets. There's no hope for him, and we don't actually don't have any desire to help him in any way. So look at this young man. Soak in this picture of who he is. Because behold, this is a clear picture of all of us without Christ. This is you. This is me. We are this young man Broke and penniless in a pigsty, away from our Father with nothing. We have nothing before Him. This is the wages, the payment of sin. It is death. And this is who we are. We are completely and totally lost. We have rebelled against a loving Heavenly Father who wanted nothing but to give us the things that we desired. But we have said we don't want you. And we've rebelled against Him. So I say, this is you. And maybe you say, no, not me. I mean, I'm bad. I'm not that bad. And I would say, yes, this is you. (laughs) And if you think this isn't you, if you think you're a little bit better, then I invite you to come back next week and behold your picture in the elder son. The elder son who, in fact, was just as foolish, just as disrespectful, just as selfish, just as lost, and just as dead as his starving brother in a distant country. But for now, let's look at this shadow of a man here. Look at this sinner dying in his trespasses and sins. And this is us. But the story doesn't end here, does it? I mean, Jesus doesn't leave us in this place, and he doesn't leave this young man in that place. He also shows us not not just the rejection of the Father and the ruin of sin, but he shows us the gift of repentance. The gift of repentance. Everyone else could see this guy's foolishness and his sin. I mean, everyone around him is saying, he is a fool. He is reckless. He is terrible. But, but he is blind to his own sin. He, he's blind until one day. <laughs> there's, there's one day as he looks down into the pig slop, and he's picking up the pods ready to eat it. 
In that moment, suddenly the, the scales fall from his eyes and he realizes where he's at and what he's doing and he sees how far he has fallen. The text says, my version, but when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he suddenly came to himself. You know, in the first two parables that we saw, verses 1 through 10, we see God actively pursuing and seeking after those who are lost. That's not as clear here, is it? But I think what we find is that, that God will often seek sinners, seek lost sons and daughters through the consequences of sin and through providence. The providence, I think, is evident in this famine that shows up. God sends this famine or God allows us to reap the consequences of our sin. And and because of that, many people have come when they hit rock bottom to the point of saying, oh, now I see my sin. Now I see how foolish I have been. And sometimes God in his grace lets the bottom drop out. And that is the way that he is seeking us at times. The prodigal had gone as low as he possibly could, but it was, and it was only then that he finally saw his need of his father. It's not always going to take the loss of everything. Some people see their own foolishness before that. But, but know this, there is grace in the hardships that come to people. The grief and, and the pain of sinful choices are actually the kindness of God that lead people to repentance. The hunger and the dissatisfaction that we might feel, these are meant to draw us to God who has spread out a table to satisfy all these desires that we have. The pain and the ruin that we experience are meant to cause us to run to God, to come to Him for healing and for restoration. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you feel like the, the bottom is dropping out. Everything, everything is falling apart. Your, your world is crumbling around you. You are in the pigsty, getting to re- eat, ready to eat pig food. And God is opening your eyes, even in this moment, to say, Oh my goodness, what am I doing? What do you do? What, what, what happens when you finally see your sin? What, what are you supposed to do? Well, you do what the prodigal does. Notice what repentance looks like here. Repentance first looks like, he says it here, he comes to himself and he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So first, he humbles himself. He humbles himself. He sees his inability. He sees his foolishness. He sees his pride. He sees his stupidity. And he knew that that he had to go home. But he knew that if he was going to go back home, just imagine what this guy had done. And he left. And everyone knew about this. And now he's got to come back into this close-knit community where everyone knows what he did. Everyone saw him march off down the street ready to, to do what he wanted to do. And now he's going to come back home. And that's to invite the ridicule of everyone that had heard and seen what he had done. Just, just I'm sure he's thinking, I wonder what my older brother is going to say when I walk through the door. What's he going to think? But he sees, I have no other option. And he's ready to humble himself. He's ready to go back. He'll take whatever it takes because he knows that he needs the forgiveness of his father. He has no other hope. That's what true repentance looks like. 
True repentance, when it happens in our hearts, we don't care who sees us or who knows what we have done. We're sick and tired of the guilt. We're sick and tired of the pain. And we could care less if our sin was broadcast on the evening news because we just, we got to get rid of it and we need to be forgiven. And that's where this prodigal is at. He says, I will go home. I don't care what happens to me. I'm going to go home. So he humbles himself. He acknowledges his sin. He recognizes that he has sinned. And in this confession, he, he, he speaks forth two deep truths, two truths that I love. First, that, that all sin is first against God. All sin is first against God. So when we acknowledge our sin, we must first say, my sin is against God. He says, I have sinned against heaven. Had he sinned against his father? Yes. But first of all, he had sinned against God. All sin is a breaking of God's law. And if we are to be forgiven, we must first seek the forgiveness of God. But he also, not, not only that all sin is first against God, but also this idea that there is no such thing as victimless sin. There's no such thing as victimless sin. Others were harmed by this kid's rebellion. The father especially, but others too. And so too with us, when we sin, there's no such thing as victimless sin. That There's nothing that you do in private or in secret wherein others are not harmed in that. Your secret sins may be secret. They're certainly not secret from God, but neither are they harmless. And the son realizes that what he did, he, he did it, he thought, I just got to do what I got to do. I just need to do this for me thinking all about himself, and now he suddenly realizes, I didn't think about everyone that I was going to hurt when I did this. I didn't realize how much harm I was going to cause, and he realizes I've sinned against my father. He acknowledges this sin. So he humbles himself, he acknowledges his sin, he accepts the consequences of sin. He accepts the consequences of his sin. He's not saying, yeah, I messed up, but you know, I don't deserve whatever is coming to me because of this. He accepts, listen, I did something wrong, and I'm going to have to pay for this. He comes, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's, that's, that's what's in his heart. I am not worthy to be called your son. Sin has consequences and repentance, true repentance, recognizes that whatever punishment we get for our sin is right. And that's what we deserve. I deserve that because I have done this. As those who have sinned against God, we recognize that the right consequence for our sin against God is death. That we are not only unworthy to be called sons and daughters, but we are not even worthy to be called servants. We have completely rejected God, and we deserve to be cast out of His presence completely. He humbles himself. He acknowledges his sin. He accepts the consequences for his sin. But then look at this. He turns. He turns with hope. He turns with hope. He doesn't just feel sorry for his sin and recognize how ugly and foolish it is. He, he gets up and he walks home. He starts making the journey. There are many people who see and feel the pain of their sin. They, they, they understand the consequences. They see, this is really dumb what I did, and I've hurt a lot of people. But they never get up out of the pigsty. The gift of repentance causes someone to stand to their feet and walk home. And that only comes from God. Because he turns, but he turns in hope. And here's, there, there has to be something in this young man's heart that looks at the father and says, maybe if I go home, he'll accept me. 
you know, I think if he thought that going home, that, that the father would just totally reject him, that, that he never would have turned. He never would have gone home. If he thought that this request would be totally rejected, but, but he knew his father enough to, to just take a risk. And we might even say that, that it's, it's in fact actually the kindness of the father that was drawing him home. That he saw his sin, but he knew his father well enough that he said, if I go home, that maybe... Maybe he'll let me be a servant. You know, if, if you've wandered from God, I pray that you don't just see your sin and say, yeah, I've made a mess of my life. But did you stand up and go home? Did you walk back? Don't, don't just see it and say, wow, that was really dumb. But come home to God. Don't, don't just sit there in the pigsty. Get up. Let's pray for those that are wandering from the Father. I think this is the the prayer that we pray. Lord, let him, let her come to themselves. Let them see sin. Give them the gift of repentance. Let them come home. Now, again, if you're listening to this story that day, and you hear what the Son says, I'm going to go home to my Father. Your expectation is that when the son walks home to his father, the father is going to totally reject his son. That that's what is going to happen and that is what is supposed to happen. That this boy is going to get the public shaming that he deserved when he first asked to, for the property. He's certainly, the father is certainly not going to welcome him home. Not even as a servant. That's not even an option here. That's not going to happen. The son is dead to this family. He has forfeited any right to them. Even as a servant. That's what we should expect. But thanks be to God that He shatters our expectations. He doesn't do what we would do, right? Because I know what I'd say. (laughs) I'd say, look at you, you're, you're broke, you're starving, you've got nothing to show for all this time that you've been away. You shamed me, you shamed yourself, you shamed your whole family, so leave, get out of my sight. You've made your bed, you sleep in it. I've got nothing for you. That's what we should expect. That's what, that's what we should expect, and that's what everyone there expected. So pretend like you don't know the rest, because that's what should happen. That is right, that is just. That's what should happen. But instead, we see the extravagant love of God. <clears throat> And, and we, we spend time thinking about this son again because if we don't see how far he fell, then we won't recognize how great the love of the Father is for him. The scene is now switched. It's back to the Father's estate. The Father is about the business of his day. Um, and he sees a figure walking down the road. And it must have been some sort of practice. It must have been something over the time that the son had, had left that he started to look. And when he would see someone coming, he'd think, maybe that's him. And so he'd watch and he'd see someone coming from a far distance and, and watch and see if he started to recognize him. And you imagine that day that he probably thought his eyes were playing tricks on him and he waited longer until he realized that's, that's him, that's my son. And he realized who, is, who it is. And what's the text say he does? He says, it says that he picks up his robe and he runs. He runs down the street to, to meet his son. Now this would have been 
utterly disgraceful for someone in this father's position to do. For him to do this is no one of his stature would do this. He's, he's lifting up his robe. He's, he's burying his legs and running like a young boy down the street. It's scandalous. But in this moment, the, the father cares nothing for what everyone else thinks because he sees his returning son. And he comes to the son. He embraces him. He smothers him with kisses. He hugs this, this unclean son who, surely, who days before has been wallowing with pigs. He is still unclean. This son is unclean ceremonially according to the law. And the father makes himself unclean. He embraces his son. He probably stinks. He probably hasn't bathed in weeks. Imagine what his clothes look like. He has rags on. He has no shoes on his feet. And the son is just as astonished as everyone who's listening to this story. And he's determined to get his speech out because he practiced it the whole way. He knows exactly what he wants to say. And so he begins, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can get out this offer, Here's how I'm going to make restitution. I'll be your slave, Father. This is, this is all I can do. So I'll be, before he can even do it, the Father restores him as a full son. He says, bring the best robe, which would probably have been the Father's own robe. Bring my robe and give it to him, which would have signified full restoration as a son. He said, bring a ring which is probably a signet ring, which gives him authority again as a son. He restores him. And he says, bring him some shoes, probably because the boy had no shoes. But but also to show that he's not going to be treated like a barefooted servant. He's going to be treated like a son that wears shoes in the house. And the father restores him completely. And then he gives a command, kill the fattened calf, because we are going to celebrate the, the fattened calf, this is an animal that would have been reserved only for, for the greatest of all celebrations. It's a calf. This isn't a full cow. This is like veal. This is something that, that, that maybe they were saving for some other occasion. But the father says no other occasion is as great as this occasion. Let's kill the fattened calf right now. Why? He says, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now we could spoil the beauty of this story by actually by trying to overanalyze it. And so I just want to offer a few um, thoughts on what this picture of extravagant love looks like as it relates to the love of God towards us as wandering sinners So let me just point out a few things about this Father that tell us about our Father and His offer of salvation to us. My list kept getting longer, and I invite you to meditate and think on what the how the Father in this story reflects our Heavenly Father. But let me just say a few things. First, He takes our shame. The Father takes our shame. This this running out to meet the son is in part probably to guard the son from everyone who's going to ridicule him on the way back to the house. So before anyone can get to the son and and ridicule him and lambast him for all of his sin and everything that wrong that he had done, the father runs and meets him. 
And he shows publicly, no one's allowed to say anything to this boy because I accept him. But what's interesting, too, is that the father becomes shameful, doesn't he? That the father runs and the father embraces the son. And suddenly, everyone is more scandalized, not by what the son had done, but what the father is doing. That the father becomes shameful, running and embracing the son that he was supposed to reject. Isn't this a picture of salvation? That Jesus takes our shame upon himself. That he bears our shame for us. He runs to us. He meets us where we're at. This is another picture of seeking, isn't it? That the son takes a step home in repentance and the father says, I'll meet you. I'll run down the road to get to you. He takes our shame. He offers us unreserved forgiveness. That's another thought. He offers us unreserved forgiveness. That, that running, it, the Father is eager to forgive. He is, he is waiting. He is longing to forgive. He, as we saw earlier, he is, he is seeking us. And then just kind of attach this to that idea of he offers unreserved forgiveness. He asks nothing of us. He doesn't want anything from this son. The son doesn't get the chance to say, here's my plan to get back in your good graces. The father doesn't want anything from the son. He offers nothing. And in fact, he has nothing to offer. And God comes to us and he offers us forgiveness. And he doesn't ask anything of us. It's unreserved. It's free. If we turn from sin, he will forgive us. But he doesn't ask us anything. Because we have nothing to give. We come to Him only because of what Christ has done. That Jesus has borne our shame. That He has borne our sin. He has paid the price for us. And if we repent and believe, He will save us. Let me... um, I want to read something from this book by Tim Keller. Uh, This picture of God. Remember this idea of a, a prodigal God. So so the term prodigal, Keller says, is therefore as appropriate for describing the father in the story as his younger son. The father's welcome to to the repentant son was literally reckless because he refused to reckon or count his sin against him or demand payment. Listen to this, summarizing Act 1, which is just this story of the, the, the son and the father. Keller says, God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing. It does not matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've deliberately oppressed or even murdered people or how much you've abused yourself. The younger brother knew that in his father's house there was abundant food to spare, but he also discovered that there was grace to spare. There is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon and cover. There is no sin that is a match for His grace. Act 1 then demonstrates the lavish prodigality. There's a word that's invented. Prodigal prodigality of God's grace. Jesus shows the Father pouncing on His Son in love. Not only before He has a chance to clean up His life and evidence a change of heart, but even before He can recite His repentance speech, nothing... Nothing, not even abject contrition, merits the favor of God. The Father's love and acceptance are absolutely free. He takes our shame. He offers us unreserved forgiveness. He asks nothing of us. He adopts us as sons and daughters. Interesting to think about that as we've recognized Orphan Sunday. 
that this son was lost, was dead, and the father invites him back in as a full son, not as a slave, not as a servant, as a son. First John, behold, what manner of love is this? What kind of love is this? That we should be called sons of God? Are you serious? Is that the kind of love that God has towards us? That's what the prodigal son tells us. That's what the father tells us. Hear these words from Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. You didn't get the spirit of slavery. You don't get to come and submit yourself to God as a slave. You didn't get that spirit. The slavery of the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. That's the Spirit God gives us. He welcomes us not as slaves, not as servants, not as those that have to do His bidding and earn our keep. He offers us sonship. He gives us the robe. gives us authority as sons. He gives us shoes for our feet. And then finally, He welcomes us with joyful celebration. <laughs> he welcomes us with joyful celebration. We, we've seen this in Luke, haven't we? He invites us to the table. He says, come and, and eat with Me. Come and feast with me. And and how amazing that everything that the son was looking for is there at the father's table. And he invites him to come back in and says, were you looking for good food? I'll kill the fatted calf for you. I'll give you everything. No one can satisfy it like I can satisfy. No one can give you joy like I can give you joy. So when you come home to me, I spread the table for you. And what what's interesting to me is that this celebration, I think, the, the celebration is, is not necessarily over the, the return of the Son. It is, but it isn't. The celebration is not over who we are or, or what we have done. It's over the fact that we have been raised from the dead, of not of our own doing. It's, it's over the fact that we have been found when we were lost, we were wandering. And the celebration then is is as much about that we are rejoiced over, and it's also this, this celebration of the love and the generosity and the kindness of God. That's what the celebration is about. That's why the fattened calf is killed. Think about the feast that awaits us in heaven. It's one that this feast, it proclaims the extravagant love of God. This, this love that is, is beyond our, our comprehension. He invites us in as those who have wandered to come and to feast at His table. And, and even now, we feast at a table, don't we? That if you want a picture of the extravagant love of God, it's right here. That God loves us, not, 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 so, not even so much as He'll give us a robe and He'll give us sandals and, and He'll give us a ring. God loves us so much that He will give us His Son. And Jesus loves us so much that He will give us His body and His blood to make us His children. 
We can't bring anything to this table. You can't you can't buy admittance to this table. You you can't be a slave long enough to earn a seat at this table. You come just like the prodigal son came. You come stinking of pigs. You come unclean. You come with no shoes on your feet. The way we come to this table is the way that we come in repentance. We see, and and it's 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 we humble ourselves. We recognize that we can't do anything to earn our salvation. We we acknowledge our sin. We recognize that we have sinned before God, and we have harmed others. We accept the consequences of our sin. That the wages of our sin is death. That we deserve to be punished for all eternity because of what we have done in spurning God. But we turn in hope. This is a table of hope that if you will come to this table, if you will come to Christ, He will bring forgiveness and restoration. He will adopt you as a son, as a daughter. Not because of your own merits, but because of what He has done. So I invite you to come to this table. I invite you first of all to come to Christ. If you have never confessed your sins, repented, turned to this Father who is welcoming you, I invite you to do that. And if you have, if your hope is in Christ alone for salvation, then I want to invite you to take this meal together with me. Not, not, as, um, not as something that earns us salvation, but rather as something that reminds us of the extravagant love of God. And He's willing to lay down His very life to make us His children.